Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome on into the Big Bad Bees Podcast Network. I'm Jake Reiser here with Sky, Stanley Cup of Chatter representing. And I think we're here a lot earlier than either of us thought would ever happen. I feel like this should have happened around at least Memorial Day, if not June, late June, maybe with some happier thoughts. But we are forced to do this now after the Bruins in horrific fashion flame out of the playoffs after taking a 3-1 series lead against the Florida Panthers. Some real stinkers of losses there. Lots of question marks. We intentionally waited a couple of days, waited for the Bruins to do their own kind of post-mortem exit interviews on the season. And I think all of us just kind of needed a minute to get over the initial shock, anger, angst, whatever we were feeling. So we could do this a little more level-headed. We still might be mad online, but We'll at least have a little more information doing it. Sky, it's weird to be here, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I thought we were going to be doing something like this in, say, early June, and we'd be talking about where this team is and, like, the grand scheme of the NHL, that sort of thing. And, well, we are now, but not for the reason I want it to be. <laughs> and, you you know, we we made the choice to perhaps correctly give ourselves some space from it really uh recollect really think about the series as a whole and i came to the conclusion that this still sucks this sucks bad and it drives me crazy that we're here and florida and you had so many opportunities and you had so much to to go through and you had chance after chance after chance and you're going to be hearing about this team for a long time, but in the worst possible way. I can't believe they blew this. I it, simply can't. I think in games five, six, and seven, there are all moments that we will look at, that the players will look back at and go, how in the hell did we not close it out? That Marshawn breakaway at the end of game five, he says we'll live with him for the rest of his life. That shorty by Jake DeBrusque in game six, those two quick goals, especially the one by Pasternak in game seven. Just those are moments that come to my head and say, I thought in each of those games, we got this, we can hold on, we can do something, or at least for Marshawn in overtime, I was like, okay, you just gave us some momentum going into overtime. Now start it out quickly and finish strong. Just... There's moments as well in the other way that you look at it and go, how the hell did we hold on for so long? The all-mark mistake that led to the end of Game 5. Just the crap we dealt with at the end of Game 6. 
the, in general game six i would say is probably the turning point for the panthers mm -hmm. because the they throughout this series they'd been getting they definitely the panthers showed up to play i'll give them that um but one thing they absolutely did not have was the ability to really break down the Bruins structure and by game six they didn't just get broken structure they found targets who could help them break it down for them and that is it's unforgivable it's absolutely unforgivable to play a game as bad as they did in the playoffs that they did in game six even if you know, there's a lot to be said about how Linus Allmark played at the end of this series and definitely uh, regarding his injury status throughout the later parts of the series. But even if you think that there were goals that Linus Allmark absolutely needed to have back, congratulations, you've won it 5-3 and we're not talking about this. We're talking about the, the Leafs. That the entire, there were multiple times throughout the late periods of five, six, and seven, games five, six, and seven, where the Bruins just, they gave it up. They they pulled up. And it's maddening, maddening to think that a team that it was as good as they were all year long, even with the mistakes, even with the fact that they didn't always uh, match the forechecking pressure of the Panthers or the speed, especially through the last three games. Holy crap. The Bruins skated slowly, but those critical mistakes with puck management sank the whole thing. And it's just, I don't even, I don't even know how to describe it. It's unforgivable. And I wouldn't, I don't blame fans for feeling a little ripped off right now. It really shocks me how the Bruins goaltending situation ended up during these playoffs. It, look, I can, I can sit here not as an NHL coach and criticize Monk, Jim Montgomery and Baba Senza for letting Allmark play six of those games, no matter how hurt he was, and then somehow going to swim in for game seven. But I can also sit here as an objective person and go, if your goalie isn't giving you the results... Why wouldn't you have switched to Swayman sooner? Why didn't you switch to him in game five if you knew Omark was going to be hurt? He was a game time decision. Why wouldn't you have said, hey, let's give Omark a breather so if it happens to go to a game six, he's at least got some rest behind him. Why wouldn't you have looked at the history of your 82-game historic season and saw what worked is having that goalie rotation? I, I don't know whether it was a combination of letting Linus play so many games in a row, which I know they tried to ease him to in the end of the season, or whether Linus just simply injured himself at some point during the beginning of this series. But why wouldn't you have turned to Swayman sooner if you knew that Allmark was going to even be any sense of a liability? I don't know either. And it sort of, in my opinion, emblem uh, solidified sort of a a coaching freeze that I feel, I feel like they were a little hesitant to do the things that they had normally done that really allowed their game to thrive. Like throughout the game six and seven, the lineup stayed more or less as it was when the, when they announced it pregame and whenever things kind of didn't work going entirely their way, Jim Montgomery would totally, blend up the lines if he felt like he could get them an opportunity 
totally let that happen. And in game six, and in especially in game seven, they didn't move. They stayed static. They couldn't get sparks from throughout the lineup. And it's just, you can't do that to a team that is as, uh, for lack of a better term, predatory and as uh, as opportunistic as the Panthers. You've got to be able to mix it up on them in ways that you were early on in the season in the season and in the series. And yeah, if you knew that the, they didn't exactly say what exactly uh, all Mark's deal was by the end of it. Uh, they had uh, exit interviews today and they still were kind of mum on what exactly he had, but it seemed to be a fairly uh, painful injury. Kevin Weekus, uh just after game seven said that he was dealing with something, but if you knew that it was going to be as bad as it was for game five, and then especially for game six, if if your goaltender is doing the things that he's doing in game five, especially the unforgivable way that he gave them game five, you have to make a statement. And they did, they didn't, or they couldn't, or they felt like they still had trust in this player. And, you know, you have you have to think about the team first. You can't let personal pride of I'm a hockey player, I'm a warrior, get away from the fact that you're in the playoffs. You're in the playoffs. That means every game matters. Every advantage matters. Like if you if a player is hurt, sit him. If you're that confident in your team, whoever is your you know third second skater or your uh, backup goaltender will be fine. Barring a disaster, you probably won't need to play them. So I'm just more mystified by how Monty handled the later part of the series, starting with the goaltender and then just all the way all the way up from there. I think what weirds me out about the goaltending situation as well, especially in regards to Jim Montgomery, is how reliant he was on Bob Asenza to make those decisions. And look, I get it. I've been around other NHL coaches who have said, I don't know anything about goaltending. I just expect them to stop the puck. But to a certain point, you have to think about it in relation to your whole team. If you know your defense isn't playing as strong as hockey, you'd want a goalie in there who's feeling 100% health-wise. You'd say, okay, Bob, how is Linus feeling? Oh, he's feeling 85%. He's like, okay. Okay, how is Sway feeling? Sway's feeling 100%. Sway's had, what, 17 days of rest? Sway's feeling good. Okay, let's go to Sway. 100%. I need a guy who's going to be on his game health-wise, who's going to be to be as athletic as he can be if our defense isn't playing well. I'd rather have our goalie bail him out and be 100% than go with the 85% goalie, no matter what his regular season was, no matter what his reputation was. It's all about the current moment. And for me to have Jim basically let Baba Senza make those decisions, it's just kind of weird to me. Yeah, I don't understand where Monty thought he was going to get this trust from. Like, even just from a perspective of, you know, maybe maybe it was just a fluke. After, like, you should have had a long conversation. I think that was really the big coaching issue is that there wasn't, pushback there was just a blind amount of faith in everything would be fine so long as we stuck to our game but paul maurice managed to figure it out and you've never made adjustments 
even the kind of adjustments that you were more than willing to do throughout the regular season and a little bit into the first couple of uh, games of this se- of this series, they there was no pushback and it came from the top down and it just it frustrated them. And to your point, um, I want to give a a rare shout out to uh, Stanley Cup and Chowder's uh, comment section here. Um, there was a very good post earlier in the day that brought up a very uh, important thought that the idea of a goaltender who is just playing objectively at the at the paramount at the height of his skill is almost kind of secondary at this point. We're not in a in a position where even 90% of a goaltender is acceptable anymore. They need 95 or above. You need to be healthy. You need to be both physically and mentally sound. And if you don't have one of those things, it's the playoffs. That small crack can become a fissure real quick. And as we saw through game six and seven, it became, well, five and six more off, more, it just became a, it became a complete catastrophe. What's and... so funny to me about the series too is I feel like the Panthers had the best game plan for Bergeron and Krejci, and you saw the Bruins were at their best when they both were hurt and out of the lineup. G- games, uh, what, three and four, the two road games in Florida, I think were Boston's two best games of the series, and they did it with Pavel Zaka and Charlie Coyle as their top six centers. They both played with heart. They played with intensity. I think Brad Marchand regardless of whatever game it was in the series, was their best player by far. But I think it's funny. You talk about needing guys at 95%, 100%. You Obviously, you can't go back and change the way games are played. You just wonder what, what happened if they said, okay, Bergie, we're going to give you one more game. They clearly don't have a game plan for when you're not in the lineup. Let's see what happens game five. Yeah. Um, they clearly had uh, David Krejci and Patrice Bergeron well-scouted. Um, I think they line matched extremely well, and they also took advantage of the fact that, you know, they weren't skating nearly as fast as they used to. And then they just aggressively forecheck them all the time, just forced the mm-hmm. uh, amount of decisions that needed to be made down to into about a fraction of a section of a second or even less. You know, they forced them to have to either dump the puck off to make a super safe play or they especially turned a fairly good transition team into just a nightmare. They couldn't get anything going through the neutral zone. And a big part of it was just clamping down on that top six. And then, you know, Pavel Zaka and Charlie Coyle did a great job in relief. But once they got back into their uh, typical positions, like their effectiveness was rapidly diminished. And I do Mm -hmm. think that uh, is a credit to Paul Maurice who just, he seemed to know that if every player was in where they were, according to what the daily faceoff lines looked like, then, yeah, they would have been perfectly fine to take them on. And to your cre- to your point, I think that having, you know, giving Zaka that opportunity was gigantic because now he had a guy who he could dump off to. He had players that he could... Uh, really distribute the puck with and start to force the Panthers to do a little more extended defending, which they're not super great at. 
but I don't know. I just don't know what happened after that. You you could have. I think the cavalier nature of how they handled injury really played to the Panthers' advantage, and it's just it's so frustrating because they had them throughout five games, five, six, and seven. They had them, mm-hmm. and even and if. They played scared and they made mistakes. If you want to talk about guys as well, who, when they were in their usual roles, played terribly and were horrifically ineffective, things we never said the entirety of the regular season about these guys, Hampus Lindholm and Charlie McAvoy looked like they were playing scared the whole series. Yeah. Hampus Lindholm had been sort of, I think a lot of fans were kind of, uh, eh on how Lindholm was going to start this series. Cause he had had a couple of shaky games, but was otherwise still the Hampus Lindholm of old. But man, they played like they were terrified that everything that they did was going to go back the other way. It's they got completely off of the game of, all right, we're going to cycle. And that means defenseman cycle, too. Mm-hmm. They play. They played back at the blue line. They only did safe things. They only played safe hockey and say what you will of the amount of uh uh off i'm trying to i i completely lost the word for it uh three on one uh multi-man chances that you can give up the other way if you get your defenseman involved that still worked for the bruins like you forced brandon carlo and dimitri orlov dimitri orlov is a good offensive defenseman but the amount of skill and patience and game recognition that hampus lindholm had was lost in trying to play really safe and in doing so it gave the Panthers another player to just hammer down and say oh god there's here comes a a tough four check I need to keep the puck away from the Panthers rather than I need to get the puck up ice and that just it made them look ineffective and that's that can't be true if you're the Boston Bruins that cannot be a factor because that's what made them so good is that their defense could not just, you know, create transition, get out of the zone, block shots, do physicality, that sort of thing, but that they could recognize what's going on around them and then create scoring chances. And they got almost nothing out of their back end and particularly two players who are really good at that. And I'll give it to maybe it was something that Maurice decided that he was going to come down on too, but I just don't know what happened to them. They looked completely, they looked like they had had all their talent taken away by the Monstars. It was just jarring, just jarring to watch. You wonder if like they knew how Allmark or how much Allmark was hurt. And they just wanted to prevent odd man rushes as much as possible. So he wasn't making those athletic post to post saves. But you're right. They totally played scared. They played like, oh, my God, I don't want these guys barreling down. I will give a lot of credit, and I really hate to do so because it's the Brad Marchand effect. It's a guy who you would love on your team, but you really fucking hate to play against. I will put the explicit tag on this. We we can let it all out. (laughs) Okay, good, good. Um, Is uh, Matt Kachuk, who played like a bat out of hell, frustrating frustrating the crap out of guys for sure. But then he'd put the puck in the back of the net 
I had a great talk about this with a friend of mine who's a Devils fan, and she said, I'm not surprised. You know, it's what he was brought in to do. He was brought in to score, and he was brought in, frankly, to be an asshole, and it worked. Yeah. Um, if you remember last year, just how tough it was on the Panthers to even get out of round one and then just get absolutely bullied up and down the ice by Tampa, you can tell that they really wanted snarl, but useful snarl. And that's the most important thing. They wanted a guy who absolutely had the talent to play and could play good minutes, but they also needed someone who could get under your skin. And I, I'd say it worked. Matthew Kachuk played like a bat out of hell, but also Brandon Montour. Mm-hmm. Brandon Montour came out of nowhere and became a bane for this team. And even though uh, I'll also give another some credit here to another player that hasn't really gotten the same amount of attention, um, Lusterinen mm-hmm. was a nightmare on the forecheck. He was on top of every Bruins player who had the puck right up on their defensive blue line. They always had to turn back around. They always had to try and find an outlet pass around him because if if he wasn't uh, trying to get around them, if he wasn't trying to get the puck, he was in position to try and create a scoring chance. And man, they played like they wanted to make a statement in these playoffs. And, you know, it. they struggled to do it through the first couple games, but then... They got exact. I feel like they got exactly what they wanted. A hurt Bruins team, a Bruins team that was going to sort of lay back on individual talent, uh, try and create individual opportunities for skilled players to sort of let them coast and hope that their goaltending wasn't beat up enough that they would be in trouble. And the Panthers just completely dismantled that entire thought process right before our eyes and it was a nightmare to watch i do want to flip and talk about the offense for a little bit because there were some goods and there were some bads i I will start with the bads because that's kind of where we've been going for the last little bit i feel like on so many chances even when they did get their cycle game going they were looking for the perfect shot and not just any shot. And you could see from both of Panthers goaltenders, from both Alex Lyon and Sergei Bobrovsky, if you could create chaos in front of them, you could get it behind them. Look at both Brad Marchand goals that he got early in the se- earlier in the series. Get the puck in on net. The Jake DeBrusque goal, get the puck in on net. Cause some chaos. Lyon loses the puck. DeBrusque finds it, puts it in. Marchand. Throw the puck in on that. Bobrovsky loses it. It's in between his legs. Nobody knows where it is. Marshawn pokes it home. They stopped playing that game, and they started looking to find the perfect shot, and that's where it really got away from them. And that's, you know, we will always rag on the guys in, like, Section 303 that scream, shoot, every single time. But we all collectively felt like that person because they stopped shooting. I don't know. I just don't know what happened. Like, I understand that in these extremely important games, you want to create the best possible, you know, opportunity to score. But like, as you, it's, as you said, you can fish for rebounds and take shots, create chaos in front of the net. That's where you scored a vast majority of the goals in this series. I'm looking right here at the heat map of all the goals at all situations. Guess where they all are nearly right on top of the net or right outside the crease. You this was this was a game plan that they completely got away from. They I think they got completely caught up in their own heads about puck security 
Um, mm-hmm. I think it especially came into uh, being early on in, I think it was game, I think it was game three, where they just had an unbelievably bad puck security day, mm-hmm. where they were just struggling over and over and over to create meaningful chances. And anytime they did, it immediately turned back the other way. And that just spooked them for the rest of the series. And it it created an opportunity for the Panthers to say, all right, if they're going to try and uh, get the perfect pass, we just need to uh, crowd the crease, crowd the middle of the ice. We don't really need to put a whole lot of uh, positioning into, uh, into our game. We just need to have our sticks down so that we can turn up ice and go. And that's Mm -hmm. a, bad thing to do to that team because like them or not whether or not you think they're actually all that good or not they're fast they're really really fast carter and... verhage anthony duclair guys who oh just fly up the ice and have great shots too yeah and they they have been thriving in this you know sort of devil may care miami vice style real fast team this coursey cocaine boat that they mm-hmm. built out there and yeah they did exactly what they thought they were going to do the panthers I'm looking at that same heat map from natural stat trick there's only one place they ever shot or they ever tried to shoot and it was just right out in front of the net right out in the right out in the middle of the ice right out in that royal road area they just they didn't care how they got that shot all they cared about was getting it to the front of the net or the middle of the ice and that's all you need when you're charging up the wing because you got a puck that was being cycled around on the boards which i think was a huge thing they didn't Mm -hmm. win many board battles because they i don't think they were really supporting themselves all that well their puck security in general was bad but especially on the boards like the panthers could just strip it from them at any time and that was just god it was just a killer especially through the late uh, late games. You know, the, the only positive I kind of have is that when they did realize they could create chaos or create screens or deflect pucks, they were very effective at that. I'm looking back at like Charlie Coyle's goal in either game three or four, Bertuzzi's goal in game seven, I think it was. So when they can get um, deflections or get guys in front or get guys screening and moving, that's when they were most effective. And I think their defensemen finally recognized it. But again, that's a little bit of a too little, too late thing. Another, I guess, too little, too late thing as well as the power play finally showed up. I think I said it after the game six recap. It's like the bizarro Bruins showed up that were so effective, except on the power play for a good chunk of the regular season. The power play almost was the only place they were effective at one point during this series. Yeah, late during during the late games, games six and seven, it was the power play that saved them multiple times. But even then, you got opportunities. You got Mm -hmm. excellent opportunities when you had them. And yeah, your five on five play started to suffer a little bit, but you, you were given beautiful opportunities to put this away. And it was always in the final five minutes or so where the Panthers would just turn on the shot, the shot attempt machine. And they just, they couldn't, they couldn't capitalize. They couldn't say, Oh, Hey, empty net. We can finish this off or, Oh, Hey, 
they're about to say they're going to really, really try and press here. We can maybe turn this into a two on one situation or, you know, a two on two, something like that. That's still pretty good, given that the Panthers are what they are. They're not especially deep defensively. Uh, my camera's about to turn off, but I'm about to I'm going to fix that uh, while we're talking here. Um, the, the big the big critical issue that they faced was just. In the final five minutes of every the last five games, the last two games, they really played left. they played Jose Mourinho hockey. They tried to park the bus. They said it felt like they were just content with a one goal lead. And what they would do is just try and keep the puck along the boards or try and chip it out the center ice. And the problem was this whole series, the amount of puck battles they were losing, it became a really ineffective way of defending a lead. And in any case, that's not how you should defend a lead in the first place, especially a tenuous one goal lead like that. You should be pushing for two. Who cares if you give up the odd man rush the other way? You should have trust in your defense and your goaltending to make those stops. And even still, it, say they gave up a game time goal at that point, then you go, okay, at least they were playing hard. You know, they were trying to increase that lead and play more faithfully. It seemed like once they got that one goal lead, they were scared to take the initiative and try and get that second goal. And they were playing just the wrong type of hockey for those situations. Yeah. It, it felt like that they got half away from their game because when they were on, when they were on, they were next to untouchable. They were unbeatable in their, when they had the momentum going their way. But the minute they got up, the minute they felt like they had this in the bag, it's like, okay, let's just settle down, not do anything else. We we can hang on to this. We've done this before. Which, not with this crew, and certainly not with this many critical parts of your team injured. Like, I can't believe they that the coaching staff allowed this to happen. I can't believe that the leaders in the room said, hey, uh, we just got this lead. We need to, like... At no point throughout this play, these playoffs, especially during the, like the last three four games, Monty never called timeout. Mm -hmm. Why didn't he st stop everybody? And say, "Hey, good job. We're up. Now we need to press because these guys will come back." It never occurred. It's like it never occurred to them that this team was talented enough to come back on them, and so they got what they got. They in got that high scoring third period in Game Six, to take a timeout and take a breather and say, "Guys." We're in this. Don't let it slip away from you. You can do what you want in the locker room, but sometimes you have to say it on the ice. And it just felt like it was never said. Because I don't think they ever felt like they needed to. I and really that's a felt... scary thing. Yeah. I mean, it's enormous hubris. And given the kind of game sevens that several of the veteran players on this team have been through, you really felt like you should have called that time out and say, hey, everybody, you know, now's the time to lock it down. And I mean that in like the all three phases of the game sort of way. Mm -hmm. Neutral zone play had to be better. You really had to be better puck secure with a puck security in the offensive zone. And of course, you know, you just had to win battles in the defensive zone, really. And you could turn it into transition and they just couldn't. I cannot believe that they let this happen to them. And we are going to be hearing about it forever now. So uh, get ready for that. You know what's a little funny about the only funny thing I think about this, the way this all happened, the whole season in general, is the person you can't blame it on and the person who I certainly don't envy going into this offseason is Don Sweeney. I think in any other year you say, Don, 
You didn't give them the pieces to do it. You didn't give them enough. What more could Don have done in the last couple of years to get co- to build this team with Coyle, Lindholm? What he did at this trade deadline, those guys, frankly, were actually pretty effective for most of the playoffs. Orlov had a number of assists. Bertuzzi was beyond effective scoring goals and on the power play as much as he was one hell of a liability defensively. He gave you a bruiser on a fourth liner and Garnet Hathaway. I don't know what else Don Sweeney could have done to build this team any better. He couldn't have. And that's what sucks. Like maybe you get some center depth. Maybe you get uh, like a Marcus Kruger type, but even then that's, that's just a garnish. That's you getting even better on top of the fact that you already went and got better. You went and found Dmitry Orlov. Nobody knew that Dmitry Orlov was on the trade docket, but you got him anyway. And look how well he did. You got Tyler Bertuzzi who turned out to be a really good player at the very least when he's in his own end. And you got him and you got him where he was leading the team in scoring. He's tied with the team lead in goal scoring with Taylor Hall and David Pasternak. That's huge. And no one knew that the goaltending was going to be this hurt. Mm-hmm. He did everything right. And now he has the most unenviable position. I think of any general manager in the league right now, because he's got everything he wants, but two, two decisions by two players could upend this entire thing. It's, I don't know how he's, I don't know where you start. Cause like you either have to, you have four realistic opportunities here. You have four scenarios and which maybe one of them is considered good in which David Krejci and Bergeron decide to uh, run it back. We just had exit interviews and Krejci and Bergeron are seriously considering retirement. And one of them is taking two weeks to think about it, which means bare minimum, you might be losing your second line center, Mm -hmm. which you never had a plan for in last in last year's off season right now you have to do it and the center market isn't looking nearly as good as it did uh about a year ago everyone wants a center and everyone got it and so god forbid the la- the worst case scenario is you lose both of them i don't know where you start there you're gonna have to start making some aggressive decisions in order to either get back into the draft or get someone who can be serviceable because you can't really you can't get anybody in your prospect pool this is not mm-hmm. a great prospect pool i mean there are some guys that are doing okay but i think they're best as de- uh, depth guys so there's no one who's ready to take the mantle of that top line center and even if you said hey we'll move um zaka and coil up that's not any better it's just not and i'm looking at free agent centers right now your big push is going to have to be for a guy like Ryan O'Reilly if he doesn't sign an extension with the Leafs. Otherwise, you're pretty fucked. Like, you're not going to go after a decrepit Jordan Stahl or Jonathan Taze. JT Comfer is not a top-line center. Nick Bukestad is not a top-line center. There are no top-line centers, really, in the free agent class right now. And, yeah, there are teams who get by with having elite wingers and Again, I will give Don Sweeney a hell of a lot of credit for signing David Pasternak before the situation got out of hand, but you have to have things around him otherwise. And 
I, I just don't know what you do if you're Don Sweeney. I, you're right. It's very unenviable. And you have to give those guys the respect to make those decisions. But you also have to realize we might have to play without them. And if they take that long to make a decision, we might just have to move ahead without them or ha or tell them, hey, we're moving on with these plans. And if you do decide to come back and your choices are us or retirement, you're going to be playing as a third line or a fourth line center on a league minimum contract because we need to spend money elsewhere. Like you, these are really tough decisions you have to make as a general manager. And it, it, it is, the fact it that it's so dependent on these two guys, Bergeron and Krejci, you know, I'll, t I'll, I'll tell the story actually. Um, about Patrice Bergeron and I would be beyond heartbroken if he retired. But the, when I first started doing sports writing, sports journalism in general, I was a freshman in college. I went to BU for college, go Terriers. And, um, I was writing as an intern for boston.com. I had very luckily got the internship for the fall as an 18 year old freshman and somehow convinced them to get me press credentials to a Bruins game to write a cover to write um, an article about how good the Bruins were in the shootout. It was an unrealistically good year about how the Bruins were doing in the shootout. How long ago was this? This was the 2014, 15 season. Okay. So, cause I, I distinctly do not remember this team being great at the shootout. This was, this was probably the year that Riley Smith really broke out and had a great year. There you go. That's why they were so good. So they somehow let me get press credentials of, couple of weeks this was probably early december the bruins lost to the chicago blackhawks at home i remember i think the only goal was scored by chris kelly and milan lucic got into a fight after the goal was scored but the, I, I went down to the locker room eric tosu who now works for, i believe for the vegas golden knights and was a fantastic guy as far as um handling the media and players to help me just help me out as an 18 year old talking with um, Riley Smith getting a one-on-one -on -one with him in the locker room. And I didn't get the chance to talk to Patrice. Patrice had, I, I was in another media scrum while Patrice was talking. And so I went up to Eric and said, Hey, I miss Patrice. Is there any way I can talk to him one-on-one? -on -one? And he said, give me a second. He went out, he went and took off in the back. He said, okay, if you wait outside the locker room doors, Patrice will come and talk to you one-on-one. -on -one. And so as an 18 year old, me shitting my pants because I'm now about to have my own personal one-on-one -on -one interview with Patrice Bergeron. We had a nice five-minute interview. I could barely, I don't think I remember what his answers were. They're probably classy as it always was. Like we do, we do our homework, something like that. Mm -hmm. And then it was my first game. And so I know it was a little unprofessional. I said, look, it's my first game. I hope to do this in the future, but could I have a selfie with you? And unabashedly, he said, yeah, totally. Let's do it. And so I've got this photo with him in the bowels of TD Garden at like 11 o'clock at night and just how classy he was to do that for a guy who was totally nervous and totally out of his depth with all the other players in the press pool. For the 10 years I've been around this team, it's a moment I'll always remember with Patrice. And if he's not around this team going forward, I, I don't know what I would do with myself. I mean, I don't know what I would do with myself. Like, I think we need to get you. We need to kind of wrap our heads around the fact that we're getting to the point where a lot of the guys that uh, in our generation and maybe a generation ahead of ours, we never grew. We didn't really grow up necessarily in a time without him mm -hmm. or at the very least uh, without him being a major part of the team. 
And so, you know, there are 10 year olds, there are 20 year olds who don't remember a time without him. And it's just, man, time is undefeated. And it hurts to think that they don't have, that there's no real answer for what happens if he goes away. Cause you know, that's been sort of how the Bruins do things. They go from, you know, one really big star to another really big star. And they have, you know, they, they transition both captaincy and the relevancy of a, of the franchise to another player. And they become, you know, the heir, the heir apparent and the king of the, the world, that sort of thing. And Bergeron has been so above and beyond what we can ask for. And that story of him just being once again, the perfect hockey player, as far as I'm concerned is it's just another example of that those are impossible skates to fill mm-hmm. and they'll have to do everything they can to even get in the first boot you know and you've got maybe i don't know a month like he said he's going to be he's going to wait until june to come up with an answer mm-hmm. like you've got it's it's may 2nd now you've got 1 2 3 4 weeks until june 1st you can't you can't build you can't have a you can't have what happens when we lose our selkie winning uh number one center who's been the number one center forever and ever and ever figured out in just a month so i have i have no clue what don sweeney does but man he'd better have a great plan ahead of him and they, you know, obviously you give the guys the respect to take the time they need, but you want these decisions sooner rather than later. You can't hit free agency or that weird kind of gap in between where you can start making trades. You can't hit that time without knowing whether a you get them back and you can gamble more of the farm and see what happens or whether you have to gamble on other pieces. You have to gamble on. Matt Grizzlick and Brandon Carlo, guys who you don't exactly want to give up, but you might have to in order to reinforce the offense. You need the decisions by Bergeron and Krejci sooner rather than later to know what pieces you have to play with. And you're right. The Bruins historically have done such a great job at transitioning one era to another. I look at the defense and you looked at the last couple of years in Zidane Chara. They drafted Charlie McAvoy for that exact reason, knowing this guy was going to be a bruising shutdown defenseman with offensive upside who plays the modern game. And they let Mac play with Z and learn from him. And when Z was ineffective, as much as I thought Z probably should have retired then and there, he decided not to. The Bruins said, okay, we're ready, Charlie. This is your time. You're our top line center. Let's do it. And it worked pretty well. And then they went ahead and reinforced him with Hampus Lindholm, who should, for his regular season performance, get some Norris consideration. I don't think he'll win it, but he should at least get some consideration for it. So they did a great job on the back end with that theory, just not with the forwards. They I, Again, they're very lucky David Posternock's situation was taken care of during the season. But center depth was never taken care of. It hasn't been with the draft, you know, it's the, 
you look back at drafts and you think, okay, it's lucky we had, can draft in like the mid twenties, even the thirties and the good years when we made it that deep into the playoffs. But at what point do you say, Hey, we need to trade up and get a better prospect because we don't know when it's Bergeron or Krejci's time. And we don't want to lose out on a center who has a higher ceiling than uh, John Beecher, let's say. And that's no offense to John Beecher. Maybe he'll be a good NHL center. We haven't seen him in the show yet, but you just don't, have any contingency plan right now if they're gone. And you're right. I hope Don has a kick-ass plan for what happens. I think he's probably a shoe-in for general manager of the year with the way he handled the regular season and the way he he built this team for the first 82 games. You just hope he has that same mindset and effectiveness for the next 150 days until you hit the start of the next season. And, you know, it's got to start by the end of by probably by my birthday on the 24th is you got to have at least some plan together because God forbid uh, David Krejci decides that's it. And you know what? That's a great career too. He's been an unreal player for them. Been a huge part of uh, 21st century Boston Bruins lore, but you know, losing him will, will hurt at bare minimum and losing both of them is going to be a catastrophe. Like they're going to have to be as aggressive as humanly possible mm -hmm. to either get into this draft. Cause it is a good draft. I've gone through it. I, cause I've had to, cause I didn't think I'd have to be here <laughs> at this point, but this is a very good draft. There are some really good centers. Um, this is, this is your time to maybe make uh, some stabs at the next generation. Cause Otherwise, next year is going to be painful. They'll and... be drafting before the 20th slot this year for the first time in how long? <laughs> uh, it's been a while. It, it has been a long while. It, hell, it's been a while since they've even been in the first round. So it wouldn't hurt them to get back into it. Um, I just don't know if there mm -hmm. is a... I just don't know where you start. Because you've got maybe a little over $10 million in cap space right now coming into this uh, coming up season. You know, mm -hmm. you got to make a, a decision on a million other uh, players. Uh, Connor Clifton said that he had a good exit interview and would like to stay. Um, that's... Bertuzzi, Tomas Nosak, Jeremy yeah. Swayman. Like, nobody, nobody gave any like outside numbers on what they wanted. No one, everyone's taken this one step at a time, but. If David Krejci, bare minimum, says, I don't think I can do this anymore, then you can't promise anyone anything right now. Right. They could be useful to getting you into this first round or getting you into uh, some form uh, or getting you a great uh, center who could play longer term for them. Also, your Selkie finalists just came out. Uh, you, you won't be shocked as to who is uh, right at the top of that list. Mr. Bergeron, uh, of course. Why, yes, it is. And you you have enough talent right now to play, to at the very least contend, compete a little bit. I don't know if seriously contend, but if you lose Bergeron or Krejci, uh, you're going to have to be, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to require a very aggressive push. And that will mean that every name that you see on this team this year, like if, if this the team that played two weeks ago, 
is not going to be the one that takes the ice on October 10th of this year. It's going to be very, very different. And I'm very interested to see uh, just what Don Sweeney does to hopefully get this team a little younger uh, or, you know, just bolster, just stop the bleeding because this could become a very bad wound really quickly. You know, I'm looking at the other Selkie um, nominees too. It's Nico Heeshear and Mitch Marner. First off, interesting that there's no Western Conference representative, but B, looking at those two guys, I don't see how Bergeron doesn't run away with it. Yeah, um, I I mean, you could maybe say that Mitch Marner has really become a, uh, has genuinely become a very good player for the Toronto Maple Leafs. And to his credit, um, I'm trying to pull up his RAPM chart here, mm-hmm. making for great audio. Um, <laughs> but he he has done some exceptional work for them. But like Nico, he sure is fine. Like he, he's definitely a decent uh he's definitely a decent defensive forward but like mm-hmm. Patrice Bergeron is, has been this guy for so much longer than either one of them and man he did it again that's the crazy thing is that hurt beaten up having to p- deal with the fact that had a had the worst possible scenario happen to him just as the playoffs began he still is that guy. He's still one of the best players on defense in the National Hockey League, taking so many draws, winning so many battles, and again, several standard deviations above your average NHL player in terms of defense. He's gonna he's gonna win it. And if he ends up winning, I mean, there is there is no ceiling for him anymore. It's just do you want to keep winning the award <laughs> next year? It's 12 straight years of nominations for the Selkie. He's won it, what, five times or six times? Uh, he currently holds the record with five. And it's probably going to be six, which is scary. He's the biggest piece to lose. I, and I, I don't mean to disparage David Krejci because he's such a legend in his own right for the Bruins. If he does decide to call it quits, not to say that I'm completely comfortable with it, but I'd be intrigued to see Pavel Zaka as a second line center because when he played with Tyler Bertuzzi and David Pasternak, it wasn't ineffective, right? I hope the numbers can back me up on that. It didn't look too bad. No, he, they played pretty well. I mean, unquestionably, I, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be real with you. Uh, Zaka and uh, Berge, and uh, Pasternak were the uh, were the best def- uh, most responsible players on that line. Mm-hmm. unquestionably but they played with a lot of pep they played really fast they were a real nightmare to deal with when they got the uh, cycle game going and it also created options because if you could dump the puck, up, puck off the poster knock that's a one really good shot and if you wanted to take a big shot then guess who was right there in front of the net tyler bertuzzi mm-hmm. and it it looks like a fantastic line that is a good thing you could potentially fall back on I'm worried about the worst possible case scenario where, uh, say, Ber- either both of them reti- retire or um, Bergeron calls it quits, because that will be that'll be a hole that will require massive amounts of filling. And even if he doesn't retire, you're going to have to start making steps towards uh, filling that hole come next year, and. Oh boy, that is, it's just the worst possible place to be in. 
having all this success, having everything that you could ever ask for, and several layups, as we kept saying. And now you have to worry about what the next chapter of this team looks like. Again, not to say Don Sweeney could have done any better at the deadline, but you look at maybe missing out on Bo Horvat. Uh, I know JT Miller is a nightmare in the locker no, room. No, thank you. But yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's less to do with him as a locker room player for me. It has everything to do with the fact that he cannot play on the other side of the ice. Right. He he is just completely ineffective in his own end, and I cannot believe he was given the contract that he was given. But were, th- were there maybe other centers that um, Don could have gone after? instead? I know that the Tyler Bertuzzi trade was kind of reactionary because of the injuries to Taylor Hall and Nick Foligno. But at one point, even in the last couple of years, could Don have said, hey, maybe let's leverage next year's first rounder and get a big center so we don't have to rely on Patrice instead of going for the winger or going for the depth player. I look back at like the Nick Ritchie trade and the Andre Kasha trade that were horrifically ineffective and whether you could have used those picks somewhere else to have solved this problem. Yeah, I mean, those picks could have absolutely helped. Um, I do know, I, I think we would all would have preferred maybe the Rick Nash thing to not happen, you know, <laughs> yeah. just so that you can keep the pick and he doesn't end his career in the most ignominious way possible. Mm-hmm. And, but that was then this is now you got to figure it out. However, whichever way possible that you can. And uh, you've got, I mean, if there is a positive to be taken, if you really want to get into this draft, like, You've got enough of a team here that you could maybe start making, you know, pushes, maybe not like crazy pushes, but you could get back into this draft by trading one or two players. And who would who would you shed if you were that guy? I'm not I don't mean to put you in the armchair GM's oh, spot and on the spot, um, but who who are some guys who would you who you would be comfortable maybe offloading? Well, divorcing my feelings from game six. I do think that there is. I think that that you could theoretically either keep Connor Clifton for about six months, say, hey, um, we need you to either play the best you possibly can or we're going to find you someone who will give you more minutes and let him try and figure it out from there. Um, I really don't want to move on from guys like Matt Grislick because he's so so good in transition and the team badly needs guys like him. But then it comes down to the final, to the big ugly question of you have two phenomenal goalies. Everyone wants a goalie. And if you don't think that someone wants a goalie, you were wrong. They want it. They, there were a bunch of teams this year who could have really used a good goalie. Penguins definitely could have used a goalie. And you have you have to make a decision. Do you think Linus Allmark gets you get allows you to compete for longer? Or do you think that the RFA status of Jeremy Swayman is more valuable to you? And you know, if you wanted to move on, move on somebody, that's something you could use. And Gosh, that's just just how painful the decision making is here. 
like there are also there are a bunch of really movable contracts like taylor hall is theoretically a movable contract nick like nick felino is gonna be a uf is gonna be a ufa pavel zaka is theoretically movable jake debrusque is theoretically movable all these are useful materials to you if you want to get back into the first round but man it will sting to lose any of them the goaltending thing is really interesting for me that you bring it up because of any of the positions to have to replace one of those guys from your uh prospect pool that's maybe where i trust it the most because if if you weren't paying attention to providence this year Brandon Bussey and Kyle Kaiser lights out goaltenders this year. The both of them. If that's one area that Don has hit home runs in in prospecting, it's your goaltending. And so if you have to give up one or the other, whether it's you're ready for Swayman to take the mantle and he becomes the mentor to a guy like Bussey or Kaiser, or whether it's um, Linus Allmark, who's been such a great mentor and frankly, bro, to Swayman, and is ready to do that again with a different guy, as painful as it would be, you're right. Maybe that's the way to do it. And yeah, defense, maybe as well. Mason Loray, maybe. Is is it his time to step up? I know he's a lot bigger than a guy like Matt Grizzlick, but he's, again, he's another very good transition guy. He's a very good skater. It, not to the same effectiveness necessarily, but it's certainly one way to go. I don't know. You don't have enough right-handed defensemen to look at Brandon Carlo and go, "Yeah, that's him." Yeah, and I, I know there think, were I there. I know there would be I, there would be a lot of Bruins fans who would say the guy has so many concussions, he's got so many injuries. Of course, you should move him. Right-handed defensemen for the last probably five years or so are probably some of the most coveted position men in the entire league. There's a shortage of good right-handed defensemen, and the and, Bruins are lucky to have a guy like McAvoy, let alone Carlo, behind him. And to your point, Brandon Carlo's still good. Like even with all his injuries, he's still a very good defensive uh, defenseman. He he manages to shut down the other team when they're in uh, his side of the ice. It's just, man, there there are enough movable contracts on here that yeah, you could very easily move on from Alina Allmark type or even Jeremy Swayman and say, okay, we don't we can't realistically keep you for what we think you're worth. And we could absolutely bring up Brandon Bussey to fit to potentially, you know, continue the, the good times. Yeah. And so it's just, it's such a painful, painful number of cuts that need to be made here. And that's even coming up to the fact that you have tons of cap space by the by the traditional definition of it and you'll probably have even more next year so i just don't know where you start i don't know where you start it's, it's going to be a very very hard off season yeah it's going to be probably one of the most significant off seasons of the of the last 10 years and i genuinely don't know how Don Sweeney is going to handle it or if the organization is even going to let him handle it. Really? You think it might get that bad? I mean, it'll pro this is, this is an organization that wants to compete. Mm -hmm. Like we know that they want to compete every single year if they can. And so if they don't feel like two, three years into this, 
God knows what happens two weeks down from down the line from now. Um, we don't know what happens. And if they get impatient, they'll just find someone else who can build better. Because I will give the Bruins credit. They don't always need to uh, build through the draft. They have often drafted one or two guys, anointed them the core, and then bought the rest of it. They did it with uh, the 2011 team. They kind of did it in the 2015-2016 team. Uh, season uh, they have done it in the past um, they have uh, they famously traded for the current president of the team like this is a team that will use its cap space as a weapon and will use its uh, deep coffers as a weapon if it has to and I don't know if if they get impatient they'll decide they'll make a they'll make a pretty tough decision on their general manager just because they don't feel like it's going fast enough. I right now would would say I'm cautiously optimistic. I would say that Don Sweeney has definitely shown that when the chips are down, he will do the right thing. But man, he's got a hit. He's got a hit and he's got a hit every single time. And that's very hard to do, even as a good general manager. We've so seen be... more shocking impulsive decisions. Look at last off season with uh, Bruce Cassidy. <laughs> <laughs> We've seen more shocking um, impatience. Yeah, yeah, and I'll, I'll give I'll give them that. Sure, maybe maybe it was a locker room thing. We'll never know. I don't think we're gonna know until like everyone's retired and they, they can talk about it when they're old and gray. But yeah, they're a team that will not stand on ceremony. As much as we talk about, you know, like the classiness of the organization, still a ruthless organization. They will absolutely spend their money to go and be good again if they have to. And so, I think that's what the market demands. This is Boston. Yeah. We demand good teams. You look at the Boston Red Sox right now and look at how pissed off their fans are because they feel like they're getting cheaped out when they have some of the highest payroll in the league and should be spending to be World Series champions every year. I think, look, I think it's a lot to do as well with the last 20, 25 years of Boston sports and how supremely spoiled we have been in the winning department for the years of torment a lot of these teams gave us. The laughingstock the Patriots used to be, the 86-year curse the Red Sox had to overcome. 39 years. Yeah, the 39 years for the Bruins for the Stanley Cup, you know? We didn't necessarily get used to success. We got used to a lot of failure, but then once the success came, we became all about it. And what fan base wouldn't be if you had the means and the hunger to win? We expect that out of our franchises. And if Don doesn't hit, you're right. I don't necessarily see it as an impossibility for him to get canned before being able to make all the moves he needs to. Well, And I need to make it clear that that's not necessarily a... Uh, negative on his part he will not i don't think he will have earned his firing i think it will just be the organization knows what's going on the organization is very aware of what the market is like it's extremely demanding more so than i'd say even other uh markets are generally but personally speaking i know i think we all know just how agitated just full of agita that Boston fans get, I think they will start calling for it, even if I don't necessarily think uh, he earned it in 
doing what he's done so far. He's done a great, a pretty good job. I'm, I'm not, I hesitate to say great because it kind of started rough, but he has to accept that there is now a timer that at any time he can put his hand on and reset. But with every passing day, with everything that happens, with every major uh, decision made by David Krejci, by Paul, by uh, Montgomery, by Bergeron, that timer gets closer and closer and closer to going off. And so he's got to act quick. He's got to act quick and decisively. In 18 days, on May 20th, it will mark eight years since he's taken up his spot as general manager. Again, it, to me, it's also the maybe the same reason that was given to us when Bruce Cassidy was fired, that they needed a different voice. At what point do you just need the different voice, regardless of the production that you get? You have someone that can bring the outside perspective who's not too attached to make the hard decisions that might need to be made. It's definitely a good question. Um, they definitely brought in Don to compete. And when you're asked to go out and compete every year, that means that your draft picks basically just become ammo for big trades that you can make later down the line. And if you are someone who wants to, say, build a team more through the draft, be a little more careful, be a little more considerate, you know, build long term, you kind of need someone who... I don't, I'm not sure that uh, the scouting staff uh, is really ready for that right now because they've all been focused on creating for the here and now, the here and now, mm -hmm. no day but today sort of stuff. And so if they go on ahead and make that dis decision that they need to start, you know, I, I'm not sure they're going to ever call it rebuilding because uh, I don't know what that will look like and I don't want to know what the fan base mm -hmm. will react to it with. Maybe maybe if they send a letter, it'll be better. But uh, they they'll need. I think they'll need to make a, uh, updates to their hiring to uh, make sure that they have the best possible group of scouts, which they absolutely can purchase. Mm -hmm. Like I said, they'll absolutely uh, mess with their mess with their cap. They'll mess with their money, and they'll go and get it. But after that you've got to build a you've got to build a good you got to build a good team and you got to build it right because this uh atlantic division is getting better and better every year and you got to catch up quick because otherwise uh we could be in for lean years i don't anticipate that being like right next year or the year after that but it could be coming and to be fair this team overachieved in a lot of ways. I think we were expecting this to be the beginning of the lean years, mm -hmm. but next year I feel like is the unequivocal beginning of whatever the next generation of Bruin looks like. And to start out, it's looking a little grim. Is it like 2015 and 2016 where they just, those were lean years when you were relying on like a Tommy wing goals to try and get oh you goals. <laughs> Where you like you you weren't gonna make the playoffs and you had some really weird guys there, but they could focus on the back end. You know, it's funny to look back at Don Sweeney's draft history because I'm looking at lots of great hits. Like 2015 was the year we got as much as everyone says, you know, the famous tweet, we could oh shit, the Bruins could get um Connor, Barzell, and Shillington here. 
Nebraska's panned out into a great player as much as the other two definitely didn't hit. He also got Brandon Carlo that year. My big miss that year is Jacob Ford's backup Carlson, who when he was drafted, I thought could develop into an heir apparent. He was a BU kid who I thought was an incredible two-way player. Jacob, if you're listening to this, I'm sorry, and I don't mean to disparage you, but you did <laughs> not pan out into that, man. Well, I think I think they didn't quite have a uh, rule. They didn't quite have a a space for him on that on that roster. You know, I'm I bet you under guys like Bruce Cassidy and uh, particularly Jim Montgomery, who could definitely define a playmaker type. He could have probably been fine, but that's years down the road. And I don't mm-hmm. think he had a he, he could have held on for that long. Right. And so. To his credit, I he had a pretty good time here, and I hope that uh, all things are going well for him. And you know, I agree. I hope so. I think he's back in. I think he last played in Sweden, from what I can remember. But again, back to Don Sweeney and the, to the credit that he has, he is drafted well enough to show the Bruins what their future is. He was lucky enough to be the one to draft McAvoy. And Trent Frederick, who had a breakout year this year under Jim Montgomery. Oscar Steen, who needs to. Yeah, you got some misses in Erho Vakaninen, Stanika, who didn't show up. Well, Vakaninen also... got Vakaninen was part of getting uh was part of getting Lindholm. So it exactly. turned out okay. Exactly. He drafted a Swe- uh, Sweeney drafted Swayman. Um yeah, I, I said Sunika Sweeney drafted Lauko, who, again, I think as much as he's probably limited in a fourth-line role, had a breakout on the fourth line this year. And after that, it's too it's too early to say. Mason Lowry looks great. I hope John Beecher looks good. Fabian Lysel, I hope, can be a great winger behind David Posternock. But, you know, it's not like Don Sweeney hasn't drafted well to give it, this core its boost. You just hope that he can whether he's given the opportunity or not to make those savvy moves that we've seen him make to keep this team relevant. For sure. And I think it's just, you know, he had to maximize the most out of the current core that he inherited. And to his credit, he absolutely did that. So now it's just a question of what can you do with the last bits of this core? And can you turn it into a new core? You know, with all these players who used to be rookies and guys who were just coming up and, uh, maybe at bare minimum, like two players who used to know what a Stanley Cup looked like, and you know that's that would be tough on ever anybody. And as you said, when the chips are down, when he really needs to make a a hit, he'll hit, and even in uh, later rounds, he'll find value. It's just a matter of can you uh, overcome the 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 timer that I, I previously mentioned is just, can you overcome the uh, market wide lack of patience and can you assuage enough people to say, all right, we can, we can settle down for a couple of weeks instead of going, Oh my, instead of going, Oh my God, this team is never going to win again. We have to fire everybody, which can happen. And it, and it has, it has, sank better careers than his i can say that for certain and it's probably about to sink more in the near future Mm -hmm. but that's just the high standard that the boston bruins set so you he you need you need their answers bergeron and krejci's to avoid 
another jump the gun deal like a Matt Bolesky in 2015 that happened. I think Please I remember don't that. Ever yeah. do that again. <laughs> I I saw Matt Bolesky's last uh, North American goal. I don't want to ever have to live through that kind of thing again. It, it was a it was an improvidence game that they uh, unfortunately did not come back in, but it took them a long time to really recover from making such a panic decision. And really, I just I if the next couple of years need to prove anything, it's all you have to do in order to ingratiate people is be watchable. And they're already in a position where they are they're extremely watchable. And so if you can convince people that being watchable means being good or being able to compete, they'll be able to live with it. And I think he's in a, pos- a unique position, a very high danger and potentially really uh, screwed up position where he has to uh, replace two probable Hall of Famers in a very short amount of time. But, you know, he could do it. He absolutely did. Uh, could do it he just needs to have the time to do it well this has certainly been a good hour i don't know if i feel any better but i at least know that there's light at the end of this tunnel (laughs) somewhere be it a green line train coming at you or the beautiful sunrise one either one (laughs) you'll be fine (laughs) like i i think getting this out into the ether definitely helped me understand the what needs to come next and definitely i am not happy about any of this this still sucks but now it's all right i got it out of my system what's next i think we just went through all five stages of grief in a single (laughs) podcast you know denial we can't believe after this season it's happening Anger, what the hell were the coaches doing? Bargaining, you know, the injuries maybe had something to do with it. All the line flipping. Depression, oh, we've got such a tough future. It's Don, it's Don Sweeney on the chopping block. But I think we finally just come to accept that, you know, it, it's hockey. You know, in the end, this is a it's a game that's played on the ice. Decisions are made in a boardroom. And we, we have to, we love it as much as we can. And the one thing I will say, as much as I complained about Boston fans, that we can be a little snooty in the fact that we demand perfection and winning all the time. We stick with our teams through the highs and the lows. And whether this is a high or a low, I know that I'll stick with them. I hope everybody listening sticks with them because that's what we do. I stuck with them through probably one of the worst games I have ever seen in person which was the uh, Lucic's first time back in Boston after being traded, uh, which was just a gruesome, gruesome game. And I was getting this close. And then I turned my head and saw people leaving. And I said, you sit back down and watch this. <laughs> and since that day, I am with this team to the bitter end. I can't wait to see what this team looks like next year. Heck, I can't even wait to see what this team looks like by the draft. Cause I guarantee you something crazy is going to happen because, you know, this is what this team does. It like it or not, this team will uh, get in, inject itself into the conversation. And so can't wait to see what what, uh, the next chapter looks like. Fun definitely isn't the right word because none of this feels fun, but (laughs) it, 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 it's, 
it's exciting in the sense of it's going to keep you on the edge of your seat. It's not a, it's not necessarily positive exciting either because frankly, I'm going to be nervous as hell waiting to see what Don does, but it's exciting to know that this has been a long time coming and maybe this is your come to God moment and the big changes have to happen. It's like a it's like a non-invasive surgery. Like it's it's one where you know this is this will possibly make you good. You will have to be open on a table for a couple days, and that's not great. But if you get out, come out the other side, you'll be fine. And you'll get a hospital Johnny out of it. So <laughs> there are worse projects in the NHL than the Boston Bruins right now. Oh, I my God. Yeah, there, there are teams that are making money that are in an infinitely worse amount of time. So, you know, you could be you could be so many other teams right now. And so many other teams that are very, very afraid that they are not going to have a plan going forward. And at the very least, getting the advance notice that these two players are giving us is miles ahead of where like teams like the Flames, teams like the Canucks, teams like, I don't know, I'm. Nashville has is going through a major transition right now. St. Louis is probably going to go through some major transition. Uh, I can feel on the horizon. Detroit's probably going to get major transition. Uh, New York, who just had a miserable game to get eliminated, is probably about to go through some big transition. Hearing all the rumors that Gerard Gallant's on his way out, that and the way that they spent. Look, I'll give Chris Drury credit for going bold, but. You Man. could have gone bold in better ways. You could have spent I, that money on not Patrick Kane. If you listen to the roundtable that Sky and I were a part of that we released before the playoffs, I said it, and it showed in Game 7 that Rangers top six just didn't even show up to the Rock Yeah, in Game 7. They were non-existent. And you know what? They're spending an ex- some like $45 million on almost on like maybe five goals. Boston was able to get far more out of their top six this year in the playoffs. And even if it didn't end the way that we wanted it to, and potentially the way that this season could be capped off, they still have the, the embers of a good team that they just need to stoke to create another big fire. You know, I completely agree. I completely agree. Well, we hope you went through the five stages of grief with us as well. I think this was very cathartic and definitely great not to do it when we were all just mad and in shock. But this was just a great, healthy way to process it. And I hope that everybody who listened to this alongside was able to do the same thing. Whether you agree with our points or not, I hope you at least understand where we're coming from. And now the healing can begin. Or more yelling. (laughs) <laughs> yeah yelling is healing for some people who knows <laughs> all the way Either around way. well we hope you stick with us through this off season stanley cup of chowder will this will be posted on here whether stanley cup of chowder is sb nation affiliated or not we will find a way to stay alive we love our brothers and sister sites who were jettisoned who have now find way found ways to thrive themselves so whether we're a part of that crop Whatever happens to us, we will be around somehow here on the Big Bad Bees Podcast Network and the Fans First Sports Network. You know we'll be here still doing podcasts. 
Well, this offseason, we're actually hoping to add. We're going to try and get some regular rotation shows in. So it's not just me speaking into a mic for an hour and hoping to God somebody listens. So <laughs> there's an exciting future for all of us all the way around, regardless of what we're a part of. And we hope that you guys stick around and read and listen and watch and be a part of it.